This is Pain Information Network. I hate Suboxone. Welcome back. I'm going to end up part of our series on addiction and opioid use disorders and alcohol thrown in there, a little bit of alcohol use disorders, by talking about the back end of Suboxone. And it's an important topic. To summarize, once again, I'll say it, and I'll say it uh, to the last day of my career. Addiction is not a moral deficiency. It's something that happens, and to some extent it happens to every one of us at some level. Maybe Starbucks, it may be a juicy steak, I don't, I don't know. But it sets off that, that dopamine reward system in the neurobiology that we talked about, that primitive part of the brain right, right behind the ear. And we want it again, and we want it again. So when we talk about Suboxone, as I alluded to, we are not saying it's sub- substituting one drug for another. That's what most people think. I hate Suboxone because all you're doing is just giving a dirty drug to fix a dirty drug. Surprise, Suboxone is not a dirty drug. It's been around forever, and we know how to use it. We've used it in many aspects of medicine, and it's a very, very strong drug in addiction medicine as well. When we use Suboxone, those that think that this is a, a filthy drug also think it has filthy side effects. Actually, the side effects attenuate the filthiness of so many of the other drugs like heroin. Heroin is a national epidemic. It doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to be coming into the country with greater frequency, and there's demand. Where there's demand, guess what? There's going to be a problem. There always seems to be money for this drug, too. And interestingly, heroin is now kind of the cheeky-cheeky drug. It is showing up... um, in teenagers, upscale parties, uh, in nice parts of neighborhoods. It's turning up all over the country, not just some dirty alley. For some reason, people think that heroin is uh, neat and uh, kind of uh, the new thing to try, and they're finding it's available. Somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody, and there it is, and it's cheap. So in 2009, uh, there was probably 178,000 new users. There's now 620,000 current users, and it's going up. The addiction rate from those is very high. It's roughly uh, pushing 430, 440,000. And that's an increase from about half of that in 2010. So look at it go. And that's NACE uh, DUH uh, data. That's a, a national drug study unit. Um, so what's troubling is about 0.9%, let's just call it 1% of these users, um, over 125,000, are 8th, 10, and 12th graders. They said they've tried it at least once in the prior year. And that was 2005 to 2009. But we don't have any numbers as this uh, has doubled, so probably it's gone from 1% to 2%. Well, that's not a lot yet, is it's a quarter of a million people. And a substantial amount of those uh, kids are going to die or get hooked or um, get hooked and die in a slow uh, and progressive manner. So they got to get treatment. Well, how do you get treatment? 
you make it available. What makes it available? We can't get everybody into the hospital. Well, insurance companies really don't like to pay for addiction because the failure rate's high. Well, I hate Suboxone. I love Suboxone because the buprenorphine versus withdrawal and drug-free treatments for heroin dependencies just don't work. And let me give let me give you an example. So the first day we had 20 patients in what we call a maintenance uh, treatment program. That's where they get uh, buprenorphine. Then we have 20 patients that are in a detoxification and treatment program. Now, th- this was in with enriched psychosocial services. All participants in the detoxif- detoxification group dropped out of the study by 60 days. Okay? At 10 days, four s- – this is important – four subjects in the control group died. That means the detoxification treatment group. Talk about that in a second. So at 10 days, there were 19 patients in the buprenorphine program, and it stayed that way through 60 days. It dropped to eight patients in the detox group. Three by 20 days, 30 days, there were only two patients left, and a 60 days, zero. So you can see that the buprenorphine group is just kind of a flat line, and the detoxification um, group, even with psychosocial services and having um, all the th- all the benefits of someone being around, motivationally interviewing them, talking to them, they failed. And why four people died is more than likely they lost their tolerance. They went out and bought what they were taking before, and they just couldn't handle it, and they died. So that's an unacceptable risk wouldn't you say a fifth of people dying in that kind of uh, detoxification treatment program is a risk but buprenorphine i hate suboxone nope only one person dropped out and everybody's alive okay changing gears pregnancy all right like it or not fact of life is People get pregnant, (laughs) women get pregnant that are using illicit substances. The use of illicit opioids during pregnancy has associated with it the risk of infection and overdose. It's life-threatening to both the pregnant addict and the fetus. Okay, the MOTHER study, M-O-T-H-E-R. That's a study that looked at what we do when we have a mother uh, to be that's an addict and is using opioids, and what shall we do? The risk-reward benefit of what we do to both mom and the fetus. Several studies have been completed with comparison methadone and buprenorphine showing both medications to be safe and effective. True. And next bullet, studies suggest that pregnant opioid-addicted women can be successfully treated with the buprenorphine and heroin with minimum side effects on the fit on the fetus. Okay, that's a study that goes back to 1998 and 99. It's uh, Fisher uh, et al. F I S C H E R. You can look that one up. All right, more of the mother study. Okay, uh, methadone maintenance has been considered the gold standard. Okay, that they're talking methadone uh, for. 
um, maintenance of uh, behavioral norms or close to norms, uh, minimizing cravings and the like. Now, buprenorphine has been shown to be effective as well in, in another comparison study of two drugs in pregnancy in these opioid-dependent uh, women. I'm not talking alcohol, opioid-dependent. That's a mother study, and that is Jones et al. 2010. So it's a recent study, and it was a big study. So opioid therapy, here's some bullet points. Removes mother from drug-using environments, yes. Women are more likely to get obstetrical care, yes. Reduces obstetrical complications, unquestionably. Improves maternal fetal nutrition. That's a big deal. It also gives us the opportunity to talk to them about smoking and other risk items um, that will increase uh, fetal birth weight and uh, likely, you know, we'll find out someday, is going to improve intelligence down the line, IQ scores. Increase birth weight for sure. Pregnant opioid-addicted women benefit from structure and psychosocial support of treatment, and they'll get it. Um, the The one thing that's not understood by the public and many doctors are opioids are not teratogenic. That means it, it doesn't look like they cause birth defects. Now, benzodiazepines, yeah. NSAIDs can cause pro- problems. Um, I'm talking about um, other than probably Tylenol is safe. But I see uh, pregnant women come in, and they are on tremendous amounts of acetaminophen to the point uh, someone I saw this week. They're, they're taking in, in multiples the maximum recommended dose, and it's going to hurt the liver. Okay, HIV and opioid dependence. Opioid replacement therapy is associated with, bullet, Reduced high-risk behaviors. Yeah, they don't want to go for a needle. They don't have that chaotic lifestyle. And it can reduce the risk of hepatitis and HIV in this regard. Treatment of HIV-associated pain may become an issue. Neuropathy may be treated with an anticonvulsant, not carbamazepine, uh, Tegretol, because it can induce methadone or buprenorphine metabolism. In other words, it burns it up. All right, you can use methadone or buprenorphine slash naloxone for opioid dependence. Naltrexone in selected cases. Now, I mentioned naloxone there. There's a question mark. And a, a problem I get into is they want, sometimes people want the drug that doesn't have the naltrexone in it, or I mean, the, the naloxone in it, and they'll make it up. I'm allergic to naloxone. How do you know? When have you ever seen naloxone? Because they want the subutex, and they, they can snort that, and it has a bit greater street value. Just something to know. Few clinically significant drug interactions between buprenorphine and antiretroviral medications exist. And that's um, uh, from... Uh, Guideline to Opioid Therapies, uh, HIV Disease, and Drug Interactions by McCants-Katz. Okay, that's uh, at uh, pcssb.org website. And I, I agree. I agree here. This is a, um important clinical consideration for young ladies that come to us that have an opioid use disorder. Last thing we want to do is throw them into withdrawal and they lose their baby. So they need to be treated. 
what happens after they've been treated and they um, get out into society with a beautiful new uh, newborn. Uh, it's it's a sight to see. It makes it makes me feel tremendously valuable as a physician. But you know the infant is going to be born with an opioid dependence as well. And there's terminology for that. It doesn't really matter, but it's okay. Let's talk about methadone versus buprenorphine in this regard. When we're using methadone with that real long half-life and the uh, baby is born, well, it's going to have the same type of withdrawal symptoms uh, expressed differently as an adult. It's going to be a crying, irritable baby, poor sleep, uh, miserable <laughs> stomach cramping, diarrhea. So it's going to require some opioid support to be weaned down. Methadone, because of its long half-life, is going to keep that baby in the hospital with the mother quite a while. could be a couple weeks. It's, it's somewhat variable, but it's, it's a while. Buprenorphine, much less so, maybe even a few days. So that that's that's the beauty of buprenorphine. We know how to use methadone. We know how to use buprenorphine in pregnancy. They're uh, great aids in decreasing chaotic lifestyle and reducing risk. And teleologically, I mean, in just thinking about this uh, problem, you don't think, I'm not going to give a drug like buprenorphine or suboxone to a pregnant woman? Are you kidding Baby's going to come out looking funny. That's not the case. It actually can increase the maternal bond. Uh, You can increase birth weight and best outcome in the long runs. All right, let's a couple more comments about adolescence and we'll uh, wrap it up. The rate of opioid abuse and dependence in adolescence has been increasing. I mentioned this before. And it's due to the surge of abuse of opioid prescription pain medications. It's available. So these prescription opioid abusers in youth, uh, just at 12th graders, has jumped threefold uh, since 1992. Over the past 15 years, it's a 180% jump. So where are they getting it? They're getting it from the, uh, you know, from the nightstand. They're getting it from the uh, drug cabinet in the bathroom. They're getting it from grandma and grandpa. So in adolescence, uh, OxyContin use in eighth graders is felt to be somewhere around 2%. And in Vicodin, it's about 3%. Tenth graders, it jumps to 4%. Vicodin, 7.2%. OxyContin in twelfth graders... Uh, 5.5%, and about almost 10%. And these are old numbers, 2007, so count them up, okay? These farming parties, get it? Farming, P-H-A-R-M-I-N-G. These are parties where young people mix prescription medications. They take some or all at once, unaware of the potentially severe drug interactions. Unfortunately, just south of where I live, uh, a youth threw on a fentanyl patch, of course, no tolerance. Fentanyl, 100 times more potent than morphine. Guess what happened? You're right. And so th- it's so important to keep track of your drugs. They're not benign. They can find their way to the wrong place. And if you're using patches like fentanyl, something like that, get rid of them. Uh, this old uh, belief that 
You can't flush drugs down the toilet is wrong. You can't. Uh, it's not going to screw up the drinking water. It's not going to mess up uh, your septic system or whatever you have. And it's okay to do that. Uh, if you need to get rid of drugs, you can take them also to uh, law enforcement. They have collection days. I wouldn't take them to the pharmacy. They probably don't want them. They, they have all sorts of regulations about that. And I think the best way to do it is just call local law enforcement. Uh, I did even hear it from the one of the DEA tops. It's okay to flush these. And I knew that, and I have done that for a long time. If you're concerned about it, get rid of them. Don't let them hang around your house, okay? So, um, okay, I will probably go on to the next uh, topic uh, guidelines for prescribing opioids. I think that's important to go through because there's responsible prescribing and there's guidance and there's steps of application of these guidelines. Uh, They've been around forever um, and we don't want them to be standards of care. We want them to be guidelines. So we've talked about that with the CDC guidelines. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, prescribing guidelines in the next podcast. So great having you. Uh, Please leave a review at iTunes. I'm really appreciative when you do that. It really does matter. It really helps me rank. Uh, the next thing you can do is drop me a line at paininformation.com. I read them all, and uh, I uh, appreciate uh, all the positive input and topics. If you've got some topics, get them to me. And so I'll talk to you soon.